Okay, so I was maybe 15 years old, scrunched into a metal folding chair for a Saturday morning youth church service. I don't want to be there. I do not want to be there. I don't want to be there. But there I sit, waiting. The youth pastor prowls the front of the room, pacing back and forth, pacing. Then the second the clock hits 10, he starts in. You kids are running around in the most dangerous place in all of modern history. Grand Rapids, Michigan? The most dangerous place in modern history? He glares at some of the young ladies. But these girls out there, these young girls with their tight, tight skirts on and their harlots makeup and they're shaking their cakes at you when you walk by. They shake their cakes at you. I see them. Shaking their cakes? What are cakes? Who's shaking them? Please let me know where these cakes are being shaken. And that's why the church's own apostle, Herbert W. Armstrong, wrote this book just for you. Like a magician, he tears a sheet off the table, and there they are. Brand new stacks of this dark, angry-looking book, which he then proceeds to hand out to us, one by one. Only then do I see the title, The Missing Dimension in Sex. (gasps) No, 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 no. Missing Dimension in Sex? I already know the missing dimension. The missing dimension is me. That's the problem. And I expect everyone to have read this book by next Saturday. One week. Understand, I do try to keep up on church teaching. I really do. But I can't conflate two things that don't belong together. I can't think about sex and God's chosen old cabbage-head red-eyed apostle at the same time. I can't do it. I can't. I take the book home. I place it on the shelf. And the next week, when the youth pastor asks me about it, I say, it's a fantastic read. I tell him it really inspired me to do like he said to do and do that a lot. What was the question again? When I move out of my parents' house, they sneak the book into the trunk of my car. When I move abroad, some joker hides it in my luggage. Once, I leave it at my brother's apartment behind his couch. But when I get home and open my refrigerator, there it waits next to the orange juice mocking me. A book I have never cracked. And finally, today, as a grown man, I can safely say on Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR that I never will. My name is Glenn Washington, and today we proudly present Contents Unknown. Amazing stories from real people deciding whether or not to find out what is inside. Get ready, because this is Snap Judgment. Now, our first story on today's Contents Unknown episode comes from a guy with real secrets. He's a covert operative named Mike Ramsdell. And our story starts when Mike was assigned to go into Soviet Russia and extract a high-level target. I really do think I had a death wish. I was just uh, going 
through some very, very difficult times. And so when State uh, contacted me and uh, asked me to consider this mission, I just thought, you know, bring it on. I'm your man. Bring it on. No matter what happens, I can live with it. If I make it back, that's fine. If I don't, who's going to care? It truly was escapism. I wanted just to get out. It was very important for us to find some informants, and we did find three individuals, what we call in the spy world assets. And these three Russian individuals worked for the target, the man that we were after. But when it was all said and done, just as the mission was to conclude and we were going to extract the target out of the country, one of the informants betrayed us and told the target who we were and what we were about to do. And that's when the mission went bad. My orders were to sanitize the mission. And what that means in spook lingo is to get rid of anything and everything so if the KGB or the Soviet secret police came into our apartments, they would not be able to find anything. I was instructed, you will not have your weapon, you will not have your communication device. I threw away my weapon and uh, my radio into the river. In the middle of the night, I was definitely on my own. I would have to use all my training and resources to survive. My orders were clean those apartments, do my work, and then get out of town as quick as possible. The last apartment that I was to sterilize was on the sixth floor. There was something that told me to look outside, and I walked across the hallway to the kitchen, pulled back the drapes, I looked down, and there I saw two mafia goons waiting for me. People think that, uh, you know, 007, he never shows uh, his true emotions. That's not true at all. I knew I was in big trouble because I had already disposed of my weapon and my communication device. I couldn't confront them. I had nothing, and suddenly I heard the crowbar break the front door of the apartment. The fear and the panic was just, even retelling the story right now, my heart's beating. I heard the crowbar start to break the front door, and uh, all I could do was, I had no other choice. I had to confront them. I pulled on my gloves, I zipped up my jacket, I walked towards the front door and uh, said a prayer, and then the, uh, the splinters and the door came apart. There, the, the mafia goon was standing there. I had a maneuver worked out with a certain blow to his temple. I had nothing, and he, he had a pair of brass knuckles. Within a short time, I looked like a big red wedge of Swiss cheese. Somehow, we ended up in this stairwell. In one hand, he has these bloody brass knuckles. In the other, he pulled out a stiletto knife and was jousting where the first cuts were going to go. Just as he was ready to carve me up, by the grace of God, there was the building drunk on the stairwell underneath us, and he reached up through the stairwell and grabbed the mafia goon's pant leg and pulled on it. And in that saving moment, 
when that mafia goon looked down, I flew around him and over him. Down those stairs, I bounded. I told myself, Mike, get to the train station. I'd lost so much blood from the beating. I stopped by a vacant building and turned around to see how close they were behind me. And the, the only movement on the street that night was the falling snow, the very first snow of the oncoming Russian winter. Why did I choose to do this? I didn't have to accept this assignment. Headquarters had directed me that I would catch a local train and I would be on that train for several days until I got to the village of Potevka, where indeed we did have a safe house. I am so thankful to be on the train and to be alive. At the same time, I'm constantly looking over my shoulder thinking that the mafia or the KGB are on the train with me. I'm in terrible, terrible condition. The only sustenance I had in those five days was the awful Russian black tea that was available to everyone on the train. I cannot tell you how hungry and starved I was, but I knew if I could hang on long enough, it is policy that every safe house is equipped with seven days MREs, meals ready to eat. It was late at night, it was dark, blizzard, snowy. I got to this dilapidated train station. I made my way, trudging through the heavy snow, about a mile to the cabin. I walked to the cupboard, opened the doors. There are no boxes of MREs. Went to the back of the cabin, to the closet, looked in the floorboards, up in the rafters of the cabin, and again, no MREs. I was so spent, I pulled probably a dozen blankets over me and a, crawled in a straw bed, fully dressed. In the morning, trudged into the village, to the marketplace, and I convinced myself, there, you lucky cuss, you will be able to get some cabbage, whoopee, some potatoes. And strange as it sounds, as I walked, I saw, I saw no one. Uh, I saw no tracks in the snow. When I finally approached the marketplace and uh, pushed open the big oak doors, uh, and that's when I realized uh, the village had basically been abandoned. I was hoping to see a light on or a candle burning and to find someone, and I did. I was able to talk to two old couples, and I took out a fistful of rubles in exchange for a potato, and they would not do it. The conditions in Russia were awful. I had more rubles than, than those old couples w would ever have seen in their life, and yet keeping food for themselves to, to survive was more important. That's when the first thoughts came to my mind that, Mike, you might not make it. How am I going to survive? Where is the food going to come from? Get back to the cabin, I was almost obsessed with the idea of dying, and I thought, there I am 
isolated in this little village in the middle of Russia, and that's how I was going to die. Why can't it be a gun battle on the streets of Moscow so that the people can read about this hero? I had been in the cabin possibly three days. It was mid-morning. Sorry, but I get a little emotional in this part. I'm at a table writing letters of goodbye because I'm not going to make it. And when any one of us writes a letter, the first thing we do is put a date on it. I had totally lost touch with reality and especially date and time. But when I pulled out my calendar, that is the moment when I first realized that it is Thanksgiving in America. I heard this loud thump or bang. I thought it could be an explosive. And that's when I heard the sound of a vehicle. I hustled to the window, but it was, there was so much snow, I could not ad- identify the vehicle, but it sounded like the engine of a Jeep. Knowing about one or two of our agents losing their hands or their face, I panicked, waiting for the explosion to happen. I ran to the back of the cabin, probably waited 15, 20 minutes and nothing happened. I pulled the cabin door open six, eight, ten inches, and there on the stone steps of the cabin was a package about the size of a normal shoebox. There's no turning back now. I grabbed the package. My heart is pounding, and I pull the string off the package. There, the first thing, a box of macaroni and cheese a little small box of frosted flakes, a jar of artichoke hearts, and there I see the Thanksgiving card, and I recognize the handwriting of my sister Karen, and then I prepared my Thanksgiving meal. There was a little package. I remember when I fixed the meal around the outside of the plate, I put all these little colorful gummy bears. They had made their way from Torrance, California, to the American Embassy in Helsinki, Finland, and somehow from Helsinki, Finland, to the safe house in Potevka, Russia. Over the years, I made a concentrated effort to find out how the package could have gotten to Potevka and how, who brought it there and why. But in our line of work in intelligence, there is a cliche that is called the need to know. And I am not privileged to ask any questions about it because, Mike, do you have a need to know? When you work in the covert world, there are so many unanswered questions you have. I still do not have a definitive answer as to how the package got to me. Thanks so much to Mike Ramsdale. Now, Mike wrote a book about this experience, and if you'd like a copy, he promises to hand-inscribe it in English or Russian, whichever you prefer. We're going to have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman with a sound design by Renzo Gorio. And when Snap returns... 
We're going to steal from a preacher. We're going to accept a package from someone we do not know. And we're going to become an entirely different entity for love. For real, when Snap Judgment, the Contents Unknown episode continues, stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Snap. Now NPR wants to listen to you at nprlistens.org. We want to know what you like about the news, the music, the stories that NPR brings to you. Have your say at nprlistens.org. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Contents Unknown episode. We're letting our curiosity get the better of us and sneaking behind closed doors. In fact, our next guest, Trey Smith, he did a lot more than simply sneak around. Snap's Julia DeWitt has a story. In Christian TV, there are a handful of pastors that preach the prosperity gospel. It's the idea that if you show your faith in God by giving money to those pastors' ministries, God will pay you back for that faith ten or a hundredfold. One of the pastors that preaches this prosperity gospel is a pastor named Mike Murdoch. I believe that when you get involved with God, he gets involved with you. He promises that if you give his ministry money, God will repay you. Newspapers have flown over my house taking pictures of my house. I didn't know how nice it was till I saw how my enemies saw it. When I saw what they were looking at, I said, wow, I am blessed. I didn't know how good God had been to me. And from God, a miracle. In eight months, my house was debt free. Do y'all clap around here? Is anybody happy over here? Is there just a spirit of jealousy here? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. But this isn't a story about Mike Murdoch. It's actually about a guy who knew him, Trey Smith. I grew up with Mike Murdoch's son, Jason. Growing up, Trey and Jason were best friends. They went to college together near Mike Murdoch's house. Mike Murdoch was often out of town preaching on the weekends. And on the weekends, Jason and I, we would end up at Mike Murdoch's house in an enormous hacienda estate had a pet zoo. He had a pet lion whose name was KK. Saunas, jacuzzis, you name it, it's there. With the place themselves, they could basically do whatever they wanted. They could swim in the pool, play with the animals, watch movies in the home theater. But their favorite thing to do was dig through Mike Murdoch's closet. This is a very big closet. You've got these four cabinets. You had one of them that had stamps in it. You have one that has coins in it, different types of loose jewelry. And then you had one of them that had unmentionables in it. The box in the back, this was stuff that was not so valuable. Probably was mainly junk jewelry. Attached to each piece of jewelry was a note that said that the donor was sorry, but this was all he or she could give. Little tithe slips that would say... I didn't have the $58 to give, or I didn't have the $101.
Trey spent hours digging through the jewelry, and during the months that he was going in and out of that closet, he was taking things. I should say here that by now, Trey had been kicked out of school. He was doing way too many drugs. His life had gotten kind of out of control. The point that I was at at that point in my life was certainly not really sanity (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination. So you felt like, I mean, you didn't really feel bad stealing from him. I, I certainly didn't have any remorse about it, so I would have to admit that's true. And I already walked into the situation being biased about Mike Murdoch, so I would have to be honest about that part because, you know, it's my opinion that the prosperity gospel was screwing so many people <laughs> over. He was just taking small stuff at first, maybe a ring or a rare coin. But eventually, his eyes turned to something much bigger. At the back of the closet, you had the safe. When Jason and I would go in and out of that closet, you know, we would shake it from side to side so you could feel the content shift around. At first, it was just a fun game to wonder how many stacks of money and what kinds of bills were in there. He and Jason joked that maybe it was a million dollars. But eventually, Trey started to wonder something else. What would it be like to actually steal that safe? If he could just get it out the door, he could be a 20-year-old millionaire. This was something that was tossed around as a joke ever since first seeing that safe. It just at some point materialized not to be a joke. It materialized on a night when Trey was alone. After a couple of drinks, Trey decided that he was going to try and get that safe. I drove a Cadillac through his gate. I'm a 20-year-old kid. I've just smashed into this property, right? So I'm trying to do this as quickly as I can. It was the middle of the night, and no one was home, so he snuck into the side entrance. Just to get into the master bedroom, upstairs, you have to go through two electronically locked doors. I didn't know the code to those doors. So I removed the hinges... Then I was in the bedroom. This was the first time that I had ever been in that room by myself. I was really nervous, but I was too far in to turn back. I took my crowbar, I hung it on the back of my belt, and walked inside of that closet. At the back of that closet, was the safe. I tumbled the safe down the stairs. I'm knocking over pricey-looking lampstands and all sorts of crap this direction and that, trying to get this thing into the back of a Cadillac. There was not a lot of thought in any part of any piece of those processes other than get it done, get it done, get it done. Trey got in his Cadillac and he headed for Houston. And this, mind you, this is a several hundred mile drive. I get the safe back to Houston. He got a jackhammer and he drilled off the lock. He reached out and pulled open the door. It's got cut paper in there that was wrapped up with rubber bands so that it 
felt like that it was full of money. All that money that he had imagined. It was just stacks and stacks of paper. I grabbed that stuff and I literally screamed. I mean, I had shraps of paper going everywhere. And it was an explosion of little shraps of paper. He dug through all of it, every last piece, until at the bottom. There were three $2 bills and there was a note inside that safe in an envelope that said, thank you for supporting my ministry. I mean, I felt like it was a personal message, basically stating that, you know, I got you. Here I am, and the reality is sinking in that I'm empty-handed, I'm screwed, and the reality of what I've done is sinking in. He had to leave the country, and he might never be able to come back. He risked his entire life to get rich, but now all he had were scraps of paper. It just makes the it makes the heart <laughs> stop. I don't know if Mike Murdoch put pre-thought into that and set me up, but it sure did feel like he anticipated. I think he was clever in that. And I also think another thing as well, I think I deserved it. The cops were after him and he was totally broke. He was forced to flee to Mexico, where he lived in fear of being caught for years. Mike Murdoch, on the other hand, continued his TV ministry just as before. If he was out to entrap Trey, he had won. I felt like I couldn't come back from that moment for a lot of years. And I actually blamed, and this was unfair by any stretch of the imagination, but I blamed Mike Murdoch in my own mind. But now, looking back at it, Trey also thinks there's another possible explanation for the note. It is possible that that note was more like an affirmation, just like the seed of his prosperity gospel. Maybe Mike planted those $2 bills in that note in the hopes that one day, the universe really would deliver enough money to fill the safe. Maybe he was just wishing for a fortune, just like Trey. I'm actually happy that all of it happened exactly the way that it did. Had that safe been full of millions of dollars and I had gone and done any one of the nine jillion dumb things that I wanted to go do, I most certainly would have been in prison. Look at all of the times that I've been arrogant, all the times that I have done nine jillion things, stealing, lying, you name it. If I can't forgive him, then what chance would I have? And I expect full and well to see Mike Murdoch in heaven, knowing full and well both of us will be in a place that none of us deserve to be. Thank you so very much, Trey Smith. We reached out to Mike Murdoch at the Wisdom Center, but he declined comment on this story. Now, Trey Smith, he lived on the land in Mexico before finally returning to the States when the statute of limitations on his wrongdoings had expired. That story was produced by Julia DeWitt. Now, for our next piece on the Contents Unknown episode, 
Stephanie Fu had only to ride her bicycle down the street to Berkeley, California. There she met a delightful, a very, very nice, but far too trusting person by the name of Alex Wall. The Greek Theater, Berkeley, California, 1989. I went to a show of the Jerry Garcia Band and I think Jimmy Cliff. Friend of the devil is a friend of mine. And I was actually leaving for Israel the following week. I decided to go to Israel for four months and live on a kibbutz and volunteer and learn some Hebrew. And this was like my last hurrah before I left. On the way back from the show, we met some guy who offered us a ride. You guys need a ride? And he was giving another ride to a guy, an Israeli guy, as it turned out. He was in the car with us for an hour and a half, and he knew I was Jewish. I was going to Israel. I was going to his own country. At the end of the ride, he said, would you do me a favor? It's my friend's birthday in a couple days, and I'm already late. Will you mail this for me when you get to Israel? It'll take much less time. If I mail it from here, it'll take two weeks. I didn't really think twice about it. I just thought, sure. And I had such a level of trust. I was a deadhead for years. And I, I really do feel like those people are your family, whether you know them or not. Show how I love you. Believe it or not. So he gave me, like, the business size envelope. He put his own return address and name on the back and just said, mail it when you get there. And I said, okay, thanks. I had the envelope in my carry-on, and when the security came up to me and said, did anyone give you anything to take to Israel, I immediately said yes, and I took out the package and gave it to them. They looked at it, and they said, who gave this to you? The guy said, wait right here, I'll be right back. And he took it behind the counter, and he was gone for like a good 20 minutes. And they came back, and the guy said, okay, you can take it. And I said, is everything okay? And he said, yep, everything's fine. Have a good trip. I arrived totally exhausted, and um, I get off the plane, go to passport control, and they don't give me my passport back. And they say, go with these people. And there were three plainclothes policemen waiting for me right outside passport control. We go in the room, and they all sit down around a table, and I'm standing up. I was just kind of like, all right, they're going to open the package and see that it's nothing, and then that's it. And one of them takes the envelope. He holds it far from his body, and he opens it very carefully with a pen. And then I see a baggie fall out. And as soon as I saw the baggie, I just, oh, my God, I knew. I said, oh, my God, it's drugs. And I just, I panicked. I, I collapsed against the wall. And they were all just staring at me, and I just totally started crying. I was just so humiliated. Their English was not very good. They didn't even know what the drugs were. And it turned out they were psychedelic mushrooms. I had to explain what I knew about shrooms. I was, you know, explaining to them that it makes you have hallucinations and everything seems really funny, and I was trying to explain this all without seeming like I knew too much about it. And they just kept, you know, okay, on with the questioning. You know, so I'm telling my account, and finally they take a break and say, do you want a cigarette? I'm not a smoker, but I thought, well, when you're being interrogated for bringing drugs into a foreign country and someone offers you a cigarette, 
you're supposed to take it. And so I took the cigarette and I totally started choking <coughs> when I inhaled and they just lost it. They just all cracked up. Like, here's our alleged drug dealer and she doesn't even know how to smoke a cigarette. And I kind of knew in that moment that everything was gonna be okay. And then finally they said, okay, you can go. And I just looked at them and said, really? You know, you've had me for five hours. I don't know where I am. You haven't let me change money. The least you can do is take me to my relatives who live in Tel Aviv. And they said, okay, we'll do that. I didn't suffer because of it. I didn't have to go to jail. I didn't, you know, it did become a joke really quickly. So a couple months ago, I was telling the story to some friends and um, one of my friends said, did you ever try looking for him to tell him how messed up that was? I went on Facebook the next morning and he was so easy to find. He was the first person with that name to pop up. One of my closest friends said, like, what do you want to get out of this? And I said, you know, I don't even know. I, it's not like I need an apology after all these years, but of course it would be nice to hear one. And he immediately wrote back and we Skyped a few days later. I was uh, happy. I, w I was really glad to get that call. And I wanted to uh, apologize. He told me what had happened on his end, you know, like he only had to spend one night in jail when he got back, but it bothered him for years. He told me that he went to therapy about it and he never touched drugs again because he felt like he didn't want to be that person that drugs made him do something like this. It was like a burden or heavy on my conscience. I didn't know what really happened. And I figured that it wasn't a pleasant experience. Everything happened, I was really upset with myself about being this way, not caring about other people. So I said, I said, no more. I'm going to be responsible for my actions. No excuses. Well, you can see like how remorseful he is and like what a nice guy he is. At the end of the story on my part, it wasn't a big deal. It was just something funny that happened. And in his case, it was something that he really suffered over for years. To me, that the reason I found him was to grant him forgiveness, like he needed it much more than I did. Big thanks to Alex Wall for sharing her story on The Snap. Alex Wall is a personal chef and writer living in Oakland, California. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. Snap Judgment, the Contents Unknown episode will be right back. Stay tuned. Support for Snap Judgment comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Did you ever want to tell NPR how you feel about NPR? Well, you can voice your opinions and provide feedback about public radio at nprlistens.org. Your input helps NPR's efforts to bring you the news and stories that matter. Have a say at nprlistens.org. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the Contents Unknown episode. Today, we're trying to find out about that which we do not know. We're going to kick this section off with a love story, the likes of which you have never heard before. Now, this is NPR, nothing graphic, but sensitive listeners and parents of young children are advised. Producer Brendan Baker spoke to Genesis Peorge.
we're looking at various newspapers that have been reproduced in this book, and one is a full page which says, Exposed! This vile man corrupts kids. Then there's a photograph of me. It is difficult to find the words to describe the activities of Genesis P. Orridge and his pop group, but we will try. And then underlined it says, vile, evil, sick, depraved are just a few that come to mind. We're talking about, you know, psychedelic rock. And they're saying that we're trying to destroy England. Robin Grizzle's music might seem a little weird, and it certainly was experimental in the 70s when they recorded. But to me, it also sounds strangely familiar, almost modern. That's because Throb and Grizzle were largely responsible for creating an entire genre that we now call industrial music. If you were ever a fan or detractor of Nine Inch Nails, Ministry, or even Marilyn Manson, you have Genesis to thank for it. Throbbing Grizzle's music was inspired in part by the work of William Burroughs and Brian Geisen, writers and artists who popularized a form of collage called cut-ups in the 1950s. Words on paper were physically cut apart and rearranged to create new kinds of poetry. There would have never been industrial music without cut-ups because we started to use literally tape recorders and cut in sounds from the street, factories, people screaming, television, radio. Everything and anything could be utilised in the music and chopped up. This is a story about cut-ups. In a way, it's about what happened in New York City in the early 90s, years after Throbbing Grizzle had broken up, in a dungeon. A dungeon is a space equipped with S&M equipment where certain types of men ring up, make appointments to be in some way submissive sexually or physically or even just mentally for whatever reasons. People have all these grandiose and scary ideas of what goes on, but sometimes it's really simple. There was a man who called himself the couch, and he would lie on the floor covered in a sheet, and all you would do is sit on him and talk about stuff and drink wine. That was it. There's the traditional stuff went on too, but a lot of it was very much intellectual and, and all going on in the brain. That was when we met Lady J for the first time. Okay, quick note here. You'll notice that Genesis says we, where most people would say I. It's a little confusing, I realize, but just hang on. There's a reason for it, and it's part of the story. We'd been awake for three days. There were no more whites in my eyes. They were bright red. And we just finally went into the dungeon itself and lay on the floor, pulled a sheet over me and went fast asleep amongst all these sort of weird gadgets for pulling people into the air and tying them up and so on. Hear a noise and somehow woke up. Sat up straight, looked at the doorway and this girl walked by with a beautiful Brian Jones blonde bob and all 60s clothes. And she was walking backwards and forwards with a cigarette in her hand, talking to somebody. And as she carried on walking back and forth, she gradually started to 
throw off those clothes and change into a really amazing leather fetish outfit. My goodness, who is that? She's so beautiful. We found ourselves saying out loud, Dear Universe, if we can be with that person for the rest of our life, that's all we want. That's enough. That turned out to be Lady J. The person who she was talking to was another dominatrix who was saying, Don't go in the dungeon, don't go in there. There's some guy in there and he's English and he's really bad news, he's weird. A dominatrix thought we were weird? Wow. And of course Lady J's thinking, want to meet this person. If this person is scaring a dominatrix, they must be really interesting. So she invited me to go out that night. We went to a club called Paddles in Manhattan some sort of underground S&M club. Jay's next to me and she's in five inch heels and she was five foot ten already so she was six foot three next to little old me who's five six. And we happened to look down and on the floor was this man and one of his hands was under the heel of her high heeled shoe and she was grinding it into his hand while we chatted. That's classy. That's really classy. Weird, but classy. We were together from then on. We were really surprised with ourselves that we wanted to have a courtship where we got to know each other really slowly and savoured every little thing. We knew there was no rush because we were going to be together forever. It was incredible. Jay was 26 and myself 45. She just instinctively felt that my personality was bigger than just being male. And that was part of the aspect of why she was so drawn to me. One time we were both kissing and this kiss went on for more than a half an hour. And we both literally left our bodies together and went off into this amazing beautiful realm of pure love and when we finally came back into our bodies we looked at each other and Jay said did you feel what I felt we went I think we did that was what we wanted to become all the time that we were constantly absolutely integrated together through love if you imagine two lots of liquid we wanted them to just end up in the same container. There would be no separation. We would become just one. But then we started thinking about it. How can we do that? Are there ways to enhance that happening? We started to dress like each other. And then we began getting our hair cut the same. You become mirror images. And as you become mirror images, it helps you to maintain a sense of surrender to each other. It still wasn't enough. It wasn't what we'd felt in the long kiss. Going back to William Burroughs and Brian Geisen and some of their work, we thought, well, if they do cut-ups with literature and even with images and even with tape recorders, what if we do a cut-up with our bodies so that we become a third being, not just a third mind? She is a registered nurse, 
And of course, her work as a nurse and a dominatrix meant that she had a very unusual experience of the human body. She'd worked in operating theatres. She'd seen that the human body is just this meat and bones that can be rebuilt almost like a car with screwdrivers and pins and so on. We have to try and remember how many surgeries. Jay had more. We got Lady Jay's beauty spots tattooed on my left cheek. She had the bottoms of her eyes done to make them more like mine. Her nose done. She had a chin implant. We both got our lips made bigger. We got her eyebrows tattooed on. We got cheek implants to look more round-faced like Jay. And had some liposuction and stuff done on the neck and the jawline. Not much. This is my third set of breasts, though. We've never really received any truly negative reactions from people we know. When we told the children, by the way, your papa has now got breasts, and Jeunesse, my youngest daughter, she said, you mean you spent money on getting breasts and I could have got a new car? Yeah, people often think that what we've been doing has something to do with gender, and it doesn't. And we can see why people imagine that. But there's a really simple way to explain the difference, which is some people feel they're a man trapped in a woman's body. Some people feel they're a woman trapped in a man's body. We just feel trapped in a body. What we're talking about is an idealized future where male and female become irrelevant. Lady J felt much the same way. I've always felt quite trapped in my body. Here she is in a home video Genesis took while she was being interviewed by the BBC. My consciousness, my, my brain, my nervous system is in this rather weak and uh, insufficient package. I'm limited by time, by, by gravity, by all these physical forces. I wish my consciousness could be liberated and completely free to go everywhere, to be everywhere. She had a very particular vision that the body was always holding her back. Years later, they were married and living together in New York. In 2005, Lady J was diagnosed with stomach cancer, but her treatment was working. By 2007, Genesis says the cancer had almost completely disappeared. And then, one day, in their apartment... We made love, and she said, I'm just going to the bathroom, and then I'll be back. Lay in the bed and dozed, and suddenly woke up really quickly, almost sat up straight, and immediately something wasn't right. Got out of bed and walked through the apartment, and we found her collapsed in the bathroom. Um, so we laid her on the floor in the kitchen and sort of screamed downstairs, uh, come and help me, and then tried to do CPR. And then the, the EMTs came, and cops and firefighters, for God knows what reason, and they were doing sort of those electric things, you know, where they do... And at one point, they actually said, you better go and uh, pack an overnight bag for her because she's going to be okay. And then after a little while longer, they suddenly went, we're really sorry for your loss. Meanwhile, one of the cops is saying, where's the husband? And we're going, that's me. They went, no, dear, where's the husband? That's me. 
They made me go downstairs to the basement and find our wedding certificate to prove we were married. So then all of a sudden they all left and there's Jay lying on the kitchen floor. And our friend Hannah, who lived downstairs, came up and she sat one side and me the other and we rubbed Jay's arms and hands to keep them warm. And then we laid in her on the right side with her arm around me and fell asleep in her arms for the last time, even though she was already technically dead. And then these guys turned up and put her in a body bag and took her away. It was heavy. Once we met Lady J, our instinct was immediately that we were so instantly in love to be absorbed by each other. Um, and when Lady J, as we say, dropped her body, as a matter of principle, we wanted to maintain what we believe is, is the, the state of things, which is that she's still as much a part of me as before. So now my body represents us both in this material world, and she represents us both elsewhere. <laughs> and then hopefully one day we will be we again somewhere else. Much love to Genesis P. Orge, a musician living in New York City We'll have more information about all that they are on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Brendan Baker and Nick Vanderkolk. You've reached the end of the Contents Unknown episode, but worry not. There's plenty more in this box left to explore. Full episodes, pictures, stuff available right now at snapjudgment.org. Twitter. SnapJudgment.org. Facebook without Snap doesn't even make any sense. Snap was produced by myself and a team with more secrets you can shake an airport wand at. The Uber producer, Mark Bristich. Pat Masidi Miller, Anna Sussman, Stephanie Fu, Renzo Gorio, Julia DeWitt, Nick Vanderkolk, and Will, not a doctor who doesn't play one on TV or Bina. CPB, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, not the community of pedestrian beekeepers. We regret any mailers that went out to the contrary. Much love to the CPB. PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. They like making the media more public, if you know what I mean. You know what I mean? You know what I mean, baby. PRX.org. And you know, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, if you had a secret, a terrible, awful, horrible, evil, don't tell anyone's secret, and you told me that secret, and I didn't tell anyone your secret, at least I didn't tell anyone who was not listening to this show your secret, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NTR.